go. Welcome, Dr. Monroe, to another episode of the Intangible Podcast. We are very glad to have you on, and thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, do you prefer Nicholas or Nick? Nick Nicholas or Nick, whatever whatever rolls off the tongue okay. easiest. Uh, most of my friends call me Nick. So yeah, you, you call me Nick. Okay, um, well, thank you. So my first question, I ask everyone this who comes on the podcast, and I'm really interested by the answers I get. So what inspired you to enter the archaeological and anthropological field? Okay, well, let's see. I guess there's two parts that, oh, I'm so sorry. I sipped that tea that probably came across. That, I didn't mean a big slurp of tea. No problem. Sorry about that. We're a casual podcast. No problem. No problem. Um, so um, actually, my interest in anthropology and archaeology kind of came in two parts. Um, I, I had a rough time my first time in undergrad. I went to undergrad uh, twice. Mm-hmm. Um, my first time I went in as a zoology major and I went to Howard University and they were undergoing some changes. Mm-hmm. So I had chosen my college very carefully because not everybody has zoology majors. Yeah. Um, but then I got there and right when I got there, um, they cut the zoology programs and the microbiology programs oh. and they threw us all in pre-med, mm-hmm. which is a very different set of kids. Mm -hmm. Um, It was super competitive and I was really unhappy. Um, And so I got kind of lost my first time in undergrad because I went in kind of, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And then when that was kind of, when that rug was kind of pulled out from under me, Mm -hmm. I got kind of lost and um, I went through some not necessarily just because of that. I went through some mental health challenges and I had to leave school to kind of refocus and recalibrate. Mm -hmm. During that time, um, I saw a television show and um, it was called, it was something that used to come on, it was Tavis Smiley, it was called the State of the Black Union. And it was, it's always like a group of black intellectuals who talk about politics, um, international politics. And they do it like, they did it like once a year. Mm-hmm. So I watched and there was one time they had a woman named Nicole who was an anthropologist and she was the only woman on the stage. Mm-hmm. And she just kind of, not that it's a competition, she just kind of blew everyone away. Yeah. And she was talking about the Afro-Colombian genocide. Um, and I had never heard anyone talk about that before. I had never really seen a woman sit on a stage full of men and just kind of like intellectually command the floor. Yeah. And I was super inspired. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I thought like, wow, I was thinking about going back to school and finishing my degree. And I said, what if I became an anthropologist, right? Um, And I guess it wasn't just that one thing, Mm -hmm. but it was one of those aha moments where I saw this woman speaking about something important. Mm -hmm. I saw her kind of grab everyone's attention to talk about a life or death situation. And for some reason in my mind, I thought, well, that's what anthropologists do, right? It's not just anthropologists who do this, but it got wrapped up like in the, in that moment where I was just yeah. floored. Yeah. 
So um, when I went back to school, I double majored in English and anthropology. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, I actually met Nicole Lee. Oh, really? Maybe like a year later after after going back to school. And I told her the story and she was like eight months pregnant and she just burst into tears. <laughs> and she was like, you can't say that to a pregnant woman. Like, you know, because <laughs> okay. she just kind of, she was very moved that she had inspired me and- uh, <laughs> Yeah, of course. Kind of lost it. Uh, <laughs> so I became an anthropologist. I became an anthropology major. But at the time, Howard's anthropology department had this uh, requirement that everyone had to do a full internship. You had to do one independent study. You had to do one full internship or you couldn't graduate. Mm-hmm. So you're on, you were on this time crunch, right, where... You have to find an internship. And I wanted to be a linguistic anthropologist because we had to do a four fields program. So we had to do biological anthropology, linguistic anthropology, archaeology, and um, sociocultural, or we had to take a a class in ethnography. And um, I couldn't get into any of the linguistics internships. They were so competitive and I kept applying and applying and applying. And every time I would apply, I wouldn't get in or I would get waitlisted. And my time was running out. Yeah. And so the National Park Service was on uh, campus and they were heavily recruiting students for archaeology projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and because my time was running out and I was like, I am the only one who hasn't gotten an internship and I don't want to not graduate on time. Yeah. I decided to take an archaeology internship to fulfill my requirement. Interesting. And I was so upset. I was unhappy because in my mind, I was thinking like, oh gosh, it's going to be so gross. Like it's going to be hot out there. There's going to be bugs. Yeah. Um, it's going to stink. Like I was just thinking like <laughs> this was going to be the worst experience yeah. of, <laughs> of my life, mm-hmm. especially for someone who wanted to be a linguist and then felt like I got like, you know, in the fear, yeah shuttled into this other thing yeah um so the project um it was at monocacy national battlefield um it was called um colloquially they kind of call it the best farm slave village and if you look it up mm-hmm. for under the national park service the national park service has all the information on the site that's the the title of it the best farm slave village but um uh the the plantation itself is in frederick maryland and it's called lemertosh plantation fascinating history. It was a French colonial family that had been essentially chased out of Haiti during the Haitian revolution. And they um, um, went to Maryland and they tried to recreate a French colonial plantation smack dab in the middle of Maryland. It was kind of crazy, right? Well, um, we were excavating the, um, the houses of the enslaved people on the plantation. And uh, we would find caches, like little places where people would dig under the floors and bury things that were important to them. Yeah. So you you think about the things people bury under floors. They would, um, bottles of wine, liquor, um, sometimes little magical items or items that were like charms or things like that. And sometimes things that you just didn't want anybody else to see or have. Yeah. And um, digging in one of these caches, I found this little mirror. 
So the thing about this French colonial family is they were very ostentatious. Um, they were, um, according to their neighbors and documents and newspaper articles about them at the time, they were very gaudy, they were very showy. And so they constantly bought and purchased um, uh, jewelry, clothing, just everything because they constantly flaunted their wealth. And so the the quarters of the enslaved people on this plantation are full of fancy things, mm -hmm. not because they were living a fancy life, but because this family would use and toss, use and toss, use and toss. And so I found this beautiful little mirror. It was um, like a little silver mirror and it had like a kind of like a carving around the outside, a mold, a molding, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it was that moment. When I held that mirror in my hand, it looked so pretty. Um, the the family, the Vincendier family, they were known for exceptional cruelty to their enslaved. Um, they the plantation had um, instruments of torture within the eyesight of their neighbors. Um, the family was actually uh, sued by their enslaved uh, twice, and they they the enslaved people won. Their German neighbors um, who were mostly Protestant and um, anti-slavery helped the enslaved people sue the Masandier family twice. And um, so these people had suffered exceptional cruelty. And I was thinking about that life where you're suffering exceptional cruelty, but you have this beautiful thing. Yeah. You have this thing that's just yours. You have this thing you don't want anyone to touch. So you bury it under a floor, you know? And I was thinking about the person who had held that little mirror in their hand. And I felt so connected through time. Wow, yeah. And that's the moment. That's the moment when I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Am I an archaeologist now? <laughs> like... <laughs> That's, that's a that's a beautiful story okay that's that's the end of the podcast thank you for coming <laughs> no no that, that, that's a beautiful story wow wow i don't know i don't know what to say uh, that was it's wow okay I mean, moving on to a little more <laughs> to some more of your recent work um could you please just talk about like your recent work right and what you do now um as as an anthropologist as an archaeologist and yeah, just what you do, whether that be um, like uh, at a university or your actual field work. I'd love to hear about both. Okay, well, um, so uh, lots of twists and turns there. Mm -hmm. um, I am a zooarchaeologist and you'll hear that pronounced a couple of different kinds of ways. It just kind of depends on who trained you. Yeah. Um, you know, and I asked my mentor one time, I was like, how come some people say zooarchaeology and we say zooarchaeology? She was like, because I know the man who came up with the word and he said zoo. Um, so <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. You can't argue with that. Um, so um, I uh, became a zooarchaeologist. So we study the animal bones that are found at archaeological sites. Um, and a lot of us study food mainly, but we study a lot more than food. We study all the ways in which human societies have used animals in terms of their uh, building their economy, building um, infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so animals are a part of not just your diet, but also your workforce, 
your religion, your ideology, um, animals symbolize things, animals uh, tell people your status. Um, so uh, at I started, um, I went to graduate school at UC Santa Barbara and I started working on a site um, called Tumbles, which is in Northern Sudan. It's at the third cataract of the Nile. Um, and so at Tumbles, uh, Tumbles is an Egyptian fortress that was built at the border of Egypt and Nubia in um, the Middle Kingdom. And so this was a really cool place. Um, oh, so I'm confusing things. So uh, Askut was uh, at a fortress at the second cataract and that is, um, was built in the Middle Kingdom. Tumbles uh, was built in the New Kingdom. And um, so both sites are places where I look at how animals fit into intergroup relations. Okay. So you have a variety, you have several groups of people, you have ancient Egyptians, you have Kermans, which was the civilization to the South. And then you have the non-state or people who weren't really a part of one of these big nations, but there are smaller pastoralist groups, they're interacting with them. So I, animals play a part in how people are interacting, what they're trading, how wealthy they are, um, you know, uh, food becomes a part of how you establish relationships with other people. Um, so I look at what food and, and what animals and how animals kind of come to play in this borderland space. Um, and so I finished my PhD in 2021 and um, did a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara. And now I work at Harvard. So I'm I'm doing a fellowship and I'll start teaching. So I, I was hired as an assistant professor, but I'm taking a writing year. And so I'll start teaching um, in the fall of next, you know, uh, 2024. And what I'm building here is kind of a larger program that looks at how people um, use animals and um, how animals come into play during times of environmental stress. Interesting. So yeah, so I'm broadening my um, broadening my scope to look across the Sahara, and I'm really interested um, in in these times when the Sahara, which started off you know kind of lush and had you know more looking more like a, a kind of a tropical savanna, yeah. eventually it dries out and it starts to become a desert. And by this time, people have um, cows, they have sheep, they have goat, um, and then they have donkeys, and then comes the horse, and then comes the camel. So as people are surviving in these dry lands, they're adding animals to their repertoire to help them survive, to help them build wealth, to fight to move things, to transport things, to build trade systems. Animals um, are, a, a, they become this, um, you know, plethora of tools that people can use to kind of build uh, different systems to kind of get what they want. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and now that you've said that, right, your field work is obviously very involved, right? A lot of uh, hands-on, it sounds like. And a challenge, like obviously the goal of this podcast is to discuss preservation and 
I did want to bring that up now uh, in the scope of archaeology, right? Um, how does preservation uh, work, right, in, in the field when, you, when you're actually working in fieldwork? Because I've talked to a lot of um, archaeologists who work with artifacts and such, and I'm sure that the process is different in, in some ways, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, so um, we work in the Sahara, which actually has pretty good bone preservation. Interesting. The bone itself preserves, and um, um, the bodies of mammals tend to mummify naturally in the Sahara. Mm -hmm. So um, for the people on our project who work with human remains, they find hair, fingernails, skin, um, the um, the body is preserved. Now, there are some things kind of molecularly that are not preserved. So sometimes the collagen that people use to study different um, proteomics or stable isotopes, sometimes those things dry out and are hard to um, extract, but the bones themselves preserve. So unless there's a lot of taphonomic disturbance, we normally get really good preservation at the point of excavation. Okay. After that, the challenges become beetles. Um, when we store our artifacts and ecofacts in our storehouse in Sudan, we're always afraid of beetles. Um, domestic beetles will eat organic material. So we go through a lot to uh, keep artifacts, especially, or I mean, organic artifacts, um, secured and kind of like sequestered from any sort of like um, March of the Beatles, right? That <laughs> kind of seek out these archaeological materials, which is so hard for me to understand. Okay, you're a beetle, right? You have the whole outside. Like there's all this juicy stuff you can eat outside, but they love archaeological artifacts. <laughs> they just want the oldest thing they can find. Yeah. Right? Then it's like how, like, there's dead animals all over the place. Like, go outside and eat some, but they'd okay. rather eat something that's like 4,000 years old, right? So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so after that, um, we pack everything really carefully. We ship it um, back to the United States, go through all the custom protocols. And mainly for bones, you just want to make sure that they don't break. So you pack them in a way that insulates them. You're very careful when you handle them. And so you store them in a dry place with um, temperature control. Mm -hmm. and, and, and from there, bones are fairly easy to care for. You know, there are some other types of artifacts like cloth or textiles that we also find where that's a whole different ballpark in terms of how to actually preserve it. But um, the bones are pretty sturdy. Okay. And, and moving off of that right now that you do have the bones and preserved in, in your field work, both recently, but also in the past, right? Your entire field work, what have you learned with, with your work? Like what's one of the, or I guess, not just one, but uh, what's some of the highlights of your work and what has it really taught you? Hmm. It taught me that humans in the past are so complex and creative. Yeah. So with um, our site at Abu Fatma, so we have several kind of sites that are clustered together that all work, um, that are all excavated by the same team. 
And our site at Abu Fatma, we found that um, there were animals buried in the cemetery and all of the animals were treated very differently depending on the species. So we call this mortuary treatment, which means how do you bury something or how do you actually bury you know, a person or animal in a grave? Mm-hmm. You know, are is the body flexed? Is it um, laid straight? Um, you know, how do you, you adorn the person or creature? All of those things are mortuary treatment. And the there were there was one dog, two sheep, and three goats. Mm-hmm. And the goats were treated like food. So the goats were butchered into the same kind of like parts. Mm-hmm. that they would be if you and some friends were going to eat a goat stew. Okay. The sheep were buried whole. So um, probably, you know, slaughtered very uh, closely to the time of burial. And the sheep were kind of placed um, in a certain place around the, the sea. So all of these animals are going into the grave of a person who's passed away. So people are cutting up goat and they're treating the goat like, okay, well, here's your food, right? You need something to eat for your journey. Um, Here's your sheep. So you can, you know, have some wealth. Mm -hmm. And um, the bigger Karma site, the Karma Capital has a lot more animal burials than we do at our site. But at the Karma Capital, the dogs are sometimes buried behind the sheep. So essentially people would make a little kind of scene where you have the deceased person on their way to the afterlife. They've got some food, they've got some pots and they've got their sheep. And if that person had a dog, they would put the dog kind of behind the sheep like the dog was hurting the sheep. Mm -hmm. Now at our cemetery, the dog was kind of um, laid in front of the deceased person Mm -hmm. and the dog was an older dog. So not all of the bones were there and the head was missing with, from disturbance, but the teeth were worn down and the um, vertebrae in the spinal column, they had lipping like arthritis. So based on the, the level of arthritis or the, the signs of arthritis and the, the tooth wear, I deduced that the dog was old. Mm-hmm. So it looks to me like this dog was the companion of the person who died. And so in their thought process, they're like, well, you're going to need your dog, you know, like <laughs> when you go <laughs> um, to yeah, the, right. yeah, to the afterlife. Yeah. Um, and so looking at how this ritual is kind of consistent over time. So when you look at karma, the karma civilization, which lasts from about, it, it really starts going around 3,500 BC and it goes all the way up until 1550 BC. Um, the way that they put these different animals in different places is very consistent, but the Kermans didn't have writing. So the interesting thing is how do you pass along precise information without writing? Um, my idea is that maybe they encoded this information in songs or some sort of poems that people would recite. Yeah. Um, but the, the, um, I guess the takeaway is that they had this really elaborate ritual and they had a way of making sure that each generation could do this ritual correctly. Um, And every part of it is so creative. Mm -hmm. And you realize, uh, you know, the people in the past 
had very richly conceived ideas mm-hmm. about um, the relationship of the living to the afterlife, uh, about the supernatural world, about the way that animals kind of fit into that world. Um, and I love thinking about that, the fact that their lives were as as wildly imaginative as ours are. Yeah. Well, to me, what you just mentioned is exactly why I find archaeology beautiful and preservation important, right? That, that like being able to just unlock this entire new world and learn so much. And it's almost like, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an archaeologist, but it sounds like it's like detective work almost, right? You're like, oh, like figuring out what happened here and why this happened. And it's it's just, it's it's so interesting, yeah. Well, it, it, it is. Um, there It is kind of like detective work because we're, we're very careful to not overshoot. Yeah. So when I teach an archaeology class, and I've been teaching archaeology for a while, mm-hmm. you know, one of the first things students want to do when we tell them to, you know, create a project or to design a project, mm-hmm. they always want to say, I will set out to prove, you know, unequivocally, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> they always use very, very strong language. And I was like, oh, okay, dial it back. <laughs> um, because the thing, the beautiful and messy thing and frustrating thing about archaeology is that you could find a pattern today and be so sure that this pattern is, you know, widespread. Yeah. Someone 10 kilometers down the road could find a pattern that calls everything, you know, <laughs> in the question. And that's the, that is also the beautiful part. It's frustrating, but beautiful. And so I was always I explained to my students, I'm like, that's why when we write our papers, we never say, and here's the absolute truth forever. Cause we know like two years from now, someone's going to be like, actually, you know, <laughs> I well, found absolutely. another thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the beauty. And I mean, one thing I've gotten from this podcast episode is you certainly inspired me to be an archeologist. And I hope um, a lot of the viewers, because that sounds very interesting. And I just want to thank you on behalf of me, uh, on my behalf of myself and all the viewers uh, who are going to listen to this podcast for coming on. I think you've really provided us with some amazing uh, new insight, right? As I said previously, you're our first, uh, one of our first, uh, uh, specifically as archaeologists on the podcast. So it, it's great to have you on. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you.